0: The Ruth Page School of Dance is auditioning dancers for its civic ballet training company designed to serve as a bridge between training and professional performance for serious dancers ages 17 to 22. Find more information at ruthpage.org. And welcome to the Dance Edit podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoigne. And I'm Cadence Neenan. We are editors at Dance Media. And first of all, happy International Dance Day, everybody. Not to be confused with National Dance Day here in the U.S., that's coming up in September. But hey, more visibility for dance, always a good thing. We love a dancing holiday. (laughs) Always love, always love a dancing holiday. In today's episode, we will discuss and contextualize the settlement that dancer Chloe Lopez-Gomez reached with Staatsballet Berlin following her allegations of racist treatment by the company. We will talk about dance artist Brinda Guha's recent Dance Magazine essay in which she broke down why, even though things are beginning to reopen, it is both impossible and inappropriate to expect dance folks to return to some kind of pre-pandemic quote-unquote normal We will do a little squeeing over and a little analysis of the new West Side Story and In the Heights trailers, which debuted during Sunday's Oscars broadcast. And then we'll have our interview with Chloe Angel, who is author of the forthcoming book, Turning Point. If you're on Ballet Twitter, you almost certainly already follow Chloe. She studied dance growing up and then sociology in college before becoming a journalist. And she brings All of that expertise to bear on this book, which gets into ballet's many ailments in a way that manages to be damning and hopeful at the same time. So even if you're pretty familiar with the whole ballet is broken discourse, um, please give her interview a listen and her book a read. Her perspective is informed by a lot of data and reporting, and it's really illuminating. Um, Before we get into the episode, though, we wanted to take our usual minute to remind you that this podcast does not exist in a vacuum. It is actually a companion to our newsletter, which is a daily digest of noteworthy dance news stories. If the Twitter like firehose of news is too much for you, but you want to keep up with what's going on in dance, this newsletter will fill that gap nicely. And you can sign up for it at thedancedit.com. Um, not that we have anything against Twitter. And in fact, you can also follow us there. We're at dance underscore edit. And we're on Instagram at the.dance.edit. All right. Now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown, which begins pretty much where we left off in last week's episode with more news on the Broadway and Scott Rudin front.
1: Yes. So last week, hundreds of Broadway workers and advocates protested in New York City, demanding not just the ousting of producer Scott Rudin, but also calling on unions and trade associations to help spearhead widespread industry reform. Uh, Rudin at this point had said that he would step back from day-to-day operations on the shows with which he is involved, a move that was largely decried as being not nearly enough, including by those of us on this podcast. Uh, In a statement to the New York Times over the weekend, he said that he would also be resigning from the Broadway League, the Trade Association of Producers and Theater Owners. So a step forward to decoupling Scott Rudin from Broadway?
0: We hope more? some progress yeah there were actually there were complaints on social media that this protest was undercovered by the mainstream theater media which you know, not great. We have included a few links in our show notes so you can find out more about what happened at the protests and also about the organizers' six central demands, the first of which was Rudin's removal from the Broadway League, um, which obviously has now come to pass. And then the second of which was the disclosure of organizations that Actors' Equity is working with to ensure BIPOC safety, which the union has also taken steps to address. So protest is effective, friends.
2: Uh, last June, Cirque du Soleil was forced to file for bankruptcy due to pandemic losses, laying off about 95% of its workforce. But after a change of leadership this fall, the Montreal-based company will relaunch its two longest-running live shows in Las Vegas, signaling that Cirque du Soleil is ready to return not just to Vegas, but to the world stage for the first time since the pandemic shutdown. Both of Cirque's Las Vegas shows, Mystère and O, oh, will reopen in time for July 4th weekend. Feels like a bellwether
0: for Cirque in Vegas. Then Broadway, then everything else. The world. Ah, Here's hoping. (laughs) In more good news, the International Association
1: of Blacks in Dance has received over $3 million from the Andrew W. Mellon and Ford Foundations to support its comprehensive organizational health initiative, Managing Organization Vitality and Endurance grant program. Uh, $1.775 million will be distributed in move grants to 30 member companies over the next three years, as well as an additional $375,000 to 25 more companies through the Building Up Integrating Learning and Development Initiative. IABD's five founding member companies will also receive $100,000 each in additional support through this latest funding. Continuing to address those historic funding inequities, uh, we, we love to see it. Yeah, such good news.
2: At least 300 students in Oneida County, New York, are now in quarantine, the worst outbreak in the county since the pandemic began. The dance link? The students were forced to quarantine after dance school students in the area began showing symptoms of COVID-19 following attendance at a dance competition in Syracuse, New York. And though Oneida public officials declined to name either the dance school or the competition, they did say that more than one student from the school attended the competition despite being aware that they had symptoms of the virus. So please, if you are bearing symptoms of COVID-19, stay out of the studio.
1: Oh, yeah, yikes. Yeah. Yeah. also get tested frequently Mm -hmm. and also studio owners be understanding about students maybe being sick or needing to step back during these times when public health is a huge problem that we all have to work together on yeah that's another podcast segment indeed Uh, American Ballet Theatre soloist Gabe stone Scheer spoke with our very own Lydia Murray about being an artist-in-residence at Palm Heights Grand Cayman, a resort in the Cayman Islands for two months this spring. He got to help shape what the program will look like for future dancers uh, receiving the residency. They actually built a studio for him while he was doing his mandatory two-week quarantine upon arrival. and He spent the time uh, working on developing a narrative ballet based in African
0: culture and folklore, something we don't see a lot of on classical ballet stages. Yeah, it's so cool. And if you haven't yet heard Gabe's dance at interview, in which he just drops all the truth bombs, please go back and give it a listen. It's an episode fifty-two.
2: Broadway nightclub and television dancer Suzanne Carmina Cancino, the last original member of the Dancing Cancinos, passed away on April 10th at the age of 90. Cancino danced in Broadway shows like Aries is Rising, Sally, As the Girls Go, and Dance Me a Song alongside the illustrious Bob Fosse. Later, Cancino proceeded to tour in her own nightclub act and made appearances on various
0: television shows. She was born in Carnegie Hall, in those Carnegie Hall apartments. True dance royalty. All right, so moving on to our first roundtable discussion today, which is about another important news story from the past week. On Thursday, news broke that a settlement had been reached between Staatsballet Berlin and dancer Chloe Lopez Gomez. And the background here is that Lopez Gomez, who is black, joined Staatsballet in 2018, but her contract was terminated last year. She talked to several news outlets around the world about the racism she experienced at Staatsballet, and her accounts were harrowing. She described a number of racist incidents, including being told to whiten her skin for performances. So the settlement, which was reached in the German labor court for stage employees, awarded Lopez Gomez 16,000 euros, which is about $19,000 in compensation, and then renewed her contract through the end of the 2021 to 2022 season. So in some ways, this is a step forward. It's a moment of much needed accountability. But The announcement also raised a whole bunch of questions about Lopez Gomez's future, about the future of the company.
1: There's so much to get into here. Um, I do think just to start, it's worth kind of going back and briefly retreading uh, what the allegations that Chloe brought to the forefront were. Um, Essentially, uh, while employed, she kept having incidents with uh, one particular ballet mistress who's on a lifetime contract ranging from microaggressions to outright racist comments in the studio during rehearsals to being forced to whiten her skin for performances, despite the artistic director at one point saying, no, that's unacceptable, you don't have to do that. After the artistic director departed, was told, well, now you're not going to get special treatment anymore, you have to do that again. And essentially just her being what sounds like targeted specifically because she was a black dancer and this ballet mistress did not like that, which largely resulted in her not being allowed to perform, not being cast. And so she came forward with these allegations. It's also worth noting at the time there was no internal instruments for dancers to bring up these issues in a way that wouldn't put them in direct conflict with the members of the artistic teams that were causing the issues. So after she found out that her contract was not being renewed, she came forward with the story. And that pretty much brings us up to the present.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, while the allegations hinge on that one, the actions of that one ballet mistress, the whole organization was complicit in creating this environment where there was no safe way to report discrimination, where there was no way to discipline this ballet mistress who was on a lifetime contract. I feel like the gut punch quote from the time story about the settlement is this one from Lupus Gomez. She said, I can't say I'm thrilled to stay at Stats Ballet, but I am happy to have work and to dance. And how awful that the state of the ballet world is so precarious that she feels she has no choice but to remain at this company even after all this turmoil. And,
1: you know, even if, you know, they have set up, uh Ballet has done work to set up an outside agency that they can report mm-hmm. incidents to um, so that there is a process for reporting discrimination. But also, as far as anything I have heard has been, this ballet mistress in question has not been disciplined in any way. I have not heard anything about making really internal changes to create that accountability. Everyone's going to be certainly watching and paying attention now and lopez gomez obviously is not afraid to come forward and talk about what's happening but you know she is contracted for the end of 2020 the 2022 season who's to say what kind of treatment she is going to be facing going back into those studios
2: I feel like more than any kind of relief at hearing of the settlement, honestly, all I felt was like so many questions rising up. Uh, Teresa Ruth Howard actually posed a lot of the same questions on the Memoirs of Blacks in Ballet Instagram account, asking, quote, what measures have been put in place to assure that there is no retaliation upon her return, end quote. And I'm happy that she will return, but has the organization done the work necessary to receive her, end quote. And I think that was really what immediately came to my head when I read the details of this settlement is really, how is this going to work? Is this actually going to be a safe
1: and healthy environment for Lopez Gomez? Like it's it's just terrible that my gut punch reaction to this was, is she gonna get to dance? And feeling like mm-hmm. the answer was going to be no. And that's terrible. Like, we shouldn't instinctively being like, from what I know about ballet, because of this whole thing, she's not going to get to dance this year, even though she has a contract. That's terrible that that is like we people who love ballet and love dance and also recognize how far there is to go and making it a more equitable workplace and also a healthy workplace. Like the fact that we're, we're sitting here being like, yeah, this probably is not going to go well. Is That's awful. That shouldn't be the way that it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, here's hoping the settlement is sort of the beginning of a journey for Staatsballet instead of the end of it, um, and that they continue to work on practices that will make for a more inclusive and, and equitable work environment. I mean, fingers and toes crossed, because otherwise, I don't know what her what Chloe's life is going to look like there for the next year. All right, moving on to our next segment, we are now going to talk about a recent dance magazine piece that hits on feelings that I think a lot of people are feeling like both in the dance world and well beyond the dance world. Dancer and choreographer and educator and administrator and friend of the pod, Brinda Guha, wrote an essay titled, I'm just saying I'll need like another solid week before I can reply to your email, which moment of silence for that excellent title. (laughs) It's A wide ranging piece that we encourage you to read in its entirety, of course, we'll link to it in the episode description, but at the heart of it is an indictment of this insidious idea that because dance artists are strong and resilient, they should be able to immediately snap back to some version of quote unquote normal activity as things start to reopen, like responding to emails about teaching or performance opportunities within hours, for example, Um, As the title references. And as Brintha says, we cannot just pretend this past year didn't happen. We can't pretend it didn't leave scars. We can't pretend that the pandemic is over because it's not over yet. And also, as we've asked a lot on this podcast, do we even want to go back to the normal dance world way of operating?
2: Yeah. So as you said, Margaret, Brintha reiterates that she believes artists are some of the strongest members of society. And I think we really have undoubtedly seen that in the past year with practically every dancer or company I follow on social media continuing to produce digital offerings, including performances and online classes, seeking new revenue streams, and just finding ways to continue to create amidst a global pandemic But as she points out, it seems like people are kind of starting to ignore that we're still trying to survive a global pandemic and that people are starting to, in some ways, deny the emotional reality of the state that we're currently living in, both pandemic aside, just the general world, as it seems to devolve into flames, and the pandemic itself. And I think she's calling in a lot of this essay for people to... Keep that in their heads as they're sending emails or communicating with members of the creative community. Remember what we're existing in. Normal isn't normal right now. We can't be normal because what we're feeling and experiencing and living isn't normal. So we shouldn't be trying to go back to this pre-pandemic normal. Not that we can right now. As tempting as it might feel, things are different right now. We need to recognize that and sit
1: with the uncomfortable feeling that that is. Something... I've been thinking about a lot, both in terms of the dance world, but also just, like, as a human being, is thinking about the fact that we as human beings, we are constantly changing and growing and morphing, right? And this past year has been unlike anything anyone currently alive has ever really experienced, this collective experience of this pandemic and all the things that it's brought to light that normally get brushed under the rug, and as a result of that, none of us are the same people we were going into this pandemic. And as we cautiously, optimistically look at, you know, it feels like we're on the tail end of this. It feels like maybe we can look ahead to a moment where we can say that we are post-pandemic, even though, hello, look worldwide at what's happening right now. We super aren't. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you know, like we aren't the same people we were before. And so the idea that we should once we're allowed to return to, you know, quote, unquote, normal, you know, get back on the grind on the hustle, be back in the studio of one another, I think it's really important to hold space for the idea that we're not the same people we were going into this Mm -hmm. pandemic, why should we work in the exact
0: same way that we did before? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there is, I feel like this is, again, continuing a theme from last week of how difficult it is for people to hold two ideas in their head at the same time because the idea that oh arts what's going to get us through this we have to keep making art or like the urgency around I need to get back in the studio I need to get back to work that is those are things that people are feeling those are valid as well art is incredibly valuable in times of uncertainty and loss and hardship many dance folks do feel a sense of urgency around their practice right now some of which is financial they have to create because they have to make a living but we can't Then forget about our duty of care to the artists, because no matter how superhuman dance folks seem, they aren't superhumans. They are people who have been through trauma. They need a minute. And I think we'd be remiss not to note that people of color are feeling the effects of this past year even more acutely Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. And this attitude of you should respond immediately to our email about this opportunity, like hustle, hustle, hustle. That's a capitalism problem, but it's also a white supremacy problem. Mm. It's the idea that the artists, and especially the artists of color, should feel constantly indebted to these large, powerful, generally white-led institutions that's rooted in white supremacy, as Brintha points out in her essay. And by the way, I've been doing some reflecting of my own along those lines in terms of recognizing more fully and completely the artistry and the personhood of our interview guests um, Rita was a guest on this podcast back in episode 53. And in the Dance Magazine essay, she says, quote, I can do more than talk about intersectional feminism and politics 101 on your podcast, end quote, which point taken, Rintha, like I hear you. Um, we have work to do too. All right. So in our last roundtable segment today, we're going to ease our aching minds into a nice warm movie musical trailer bath. <laughs> Oh, that sounded so much weirder and grosser than I thought it would <laughs> when I wrote it out. Um, during the Oscar broadcast on Sunday night, we were treated to new previews for two eagerly anticipated dance-centric films, the Spielberg West Side Story remake and the In the Heights movie. And as a bonus, the West Side trailer was introduced during the broadcast by the incredible Ariana DeBose, aka Anita, which it feels like... Odds are good that she'll be right back on that Oscars Mm -hmm. carpet next year, doesn't it?
1: It's open.
0: Anyway, we laughed, we fangirled, we learned a few things. Let's talk about both trailers. I have to
1: say, every time I see an In the Heights trailer, it makes me start doing the math on when I'm getting vaccinated and when I'll be fully (laughs) inoculated, and therefore, am I going to feel safe to go see this movie in theaters? Because I really want to. And it is the only movie that has provoked that response to me in the last year it just looks Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. joyous. Uh, Just massive shout out to Christopher Scott, who took Mm -hmm. on the gargantuan task of choreographing this film when the Broadway musical choreography by Andy Blankenbuehler won a Tony. And Chris Scott came Mm -hmm. in and worked with John Chu. And just like, it looks so joyous and exciting and fun. And I'm going to cry through the whole thing. And every time I see a new trailer, I just think, yep, this is going to wreck me in the best way. I just remember the day the first trailer came out, we were still
2: in office, and I just remember, I think, like, tearing up at my desk watching the trailer for the In the Heights film, and I don't think that's changed in any of the new trailers I watched. I feel like every time I watch a new trailer, they give us another glimpse of the movie, like, seeing more... Of Anthony Ramos as Usnavi was a lot for me and anytime Nina and Benny come up on my screen serotonin I just
1: there's there's just so
2: much in these trailers
1: the shot of Lin-Manuel Miranda like shaking
0: the hand of Anthony Ramos I just it got me I was just like my father and my son like wow (laughs) the handshake passing of the torch yeah we've had some looks at in the heights already so there wasn't as much new to discover in this trailer but it did show a little more of the Latin choreography mm-hmm. in the film, which those the Latin dance choreographers are Eddie Torres Jr. and Princess Serrano, and they are absolute royalty of the New York City Mambo scene, the on to scene, which I was a part of for a brief moment in time. It's incredible. It will be so exciting to see their work on the big screen. Yes. I can't wait. But so West Side Story, this really was our first look mm-hmm. at the film. And what struck me most was how much it looked like the Jerome Robbins movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the locations, the style of filming, even the costumes. We had Maria in the white dress with a red sash. Uh, the limited glimpses we got at the choreography.
2: I have seen, I'll say, a lot of a lot of discussion online of people saying, "Why are you remaking the original film? This seems ridiculous." And I would like to note that Steven Spielberg is basing this off of the musical itself, not the original film. Mm-hmm. So there will be adaptations i am sure and i just need people to stop fighting in the comment section on youtube nobody is trying to remake the west side <laughs> story film and ruin your life rita marino is in both you will be happy
1: <laughs> yeah i feel like that was the thing that got me was like that lingering shot of rita marino as doc i just
0: Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. by the way did you know that she's the one singing somewhere in the music important that's rita marino's
2: voice that's important important stop i'm
0: gonna cry yeah, I mean, I the idea of of paying some visual homage to the original film, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I just thought it was an interesting choice. Well,
1: and I think the uh, the tension was so palpable, and something I appreciated is that. In the sequence, in the shots where we actually got to see movement, not even just dancing, dancing, but like a group running together to someplace, it has that urgency and tension that the Jerome Robbins choreography in both the musical and the film really delivered and I think is so key to making West Side Story work. I have to say, I didn't
2: know what to expect with Mike Feist as Riff, and I'm now very excited because of
1: that trailer. Also, Ariana DeBose just looks yes spectacular,
0: and we knew she would, and it's just so satisfying. <laughs> She's already a star. She's only going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Fun side note, I think there was a moment in 2019 when these two films were shooting within a few blocks of each other in New York mm-hmm. City, which only New York City, but also I love the idea that they might have like fed off each other's energies in some way. And Courtney saw something mm-hmm. on Twitter that I'm going to make her recount now, even though she didn't want to.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, there was a tweet going around that had uh, <laughs> it's it had the in the heights poster and it said Marvel Cinematic Universe and it had the West Side Story poster and it said DC Cinematic Universe. And I just <laughs> was like, this is this is accurate although (laughs) also hopefully uh this west side story movie will be better than the vast majority of the dc cinematic universe films (gasps) don't at me we
0: all know it's true oh my gosh all right on that controversial note we're gonna we're gonna take a break uh when we come back we'll have our interview with chloe angel so stay tuned Welcome back, dance friends. I am very excited to be here now with writer Chloe Angel, who is the author of the book, Turning Point, How a New Generation of Dancers is Saving Ballet from Itself, which is out May 4th. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for joining.
3: Hi. I'm so glad to be here.
0: So good to have you. Um, Turning Point grapples with the inequities and the shortcomings of ballet, this art that many of us care for so deeply. And there's a lot of excitement around the book and the dance world. It's very like zeitgeisty. Um, but before we get into all things turning point, Chloe, would you actually tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about your relationship with dance?
3: I started dancing before I can even remember it. There are photos of me from when I was a very, very small kid dancing in settings that were appropriate, you know, recitals and classes, and then dancing in settings that are totally inappropriate, like, uh, supermarkets and airports. Um, I was just one of those kids who always wanted to be moving and always wanted to be moving to music. And I did ballet and jazz uh, from a very young age and took a bit of a detour into fairly serious gymnastics um, until I was about 12 or 13 and then came back to dance pretty badly injured my body, pretty badly messed up from various gymnastics injuries, and also, um, sort of remade in a way that I was told at the time was fundamentally incompatible with serious ballet training. Um, so I found, uh, other forms of dance that I loved, lyrical, theater, jazz, loved the sort of fossy style of dance that really encouraged use of the pelvis and hips and ribcage in a way that I had been told was completely off limits, uh, in, in <laughs> ballet, um, and I kept dancing through high school and through college. And then uh, once I established myself as a journalist, I found a way to sort of bring my my dance background back into my work in journalism.
0: Yeah. So that leads into my next question, which is talking about the beginning of the the book's story, because you had started at that point writing about ballet, um, mostly for the Huffington Post, but also some other outlets. Can you talk about when this book idea first started to sort of take shape in your mind?
3: Yeah, my coverage at HuffPost, um, I remember very distinctly, uh, saying to my editor, you know, I don't want to write reviews. I really, I don't want to write after the fact coverage of performances that are happening here in New York that very few people uh, are going to be able to have access to, Mm -hmm. um, and what I want to do is sort of take advantage of people's inbuilt fascination with ballet, um, the sort of mystique of it, and then sort of break that down a little bit and, and get non-dance readers to understand that dancers are workers. You know, they go to work every day, just like you and me. And yes, their work looks a little bit different, but they deal with a lot of the same things in the workplace that uh, a lot of us do, you know, there's racism in the workplace, there's sexual harassment, there are unions to represent them, there are interpersonal issues where you have to work with your boyfriend or wife or ex-husband or whatever. Um, And, you know, there are the same um, barriers to leadership, um, to diverse leadership, particularly for for dancers of colour and for women. And these people are just workers. So let's Let's talk about it that way, um, in a way that non-dancers can can find a an entry point as well. Um, but the moment when I really felt like there was a book here, I was writing a story in late twenty seventeen um, that was pegged to the release of David Holberg's memoir Body of Work. Mm-hmm. And Holberg writes at length about his experiences of being bullied when he was growing up dancing because he was dancing, because he was a boy who was dancing. And the nature of that bullying was sort of very explicitly homophobic and misogynistic. And I was writing this story, uh, looking at the stats on the number of or the percentage of boys who dance, who are bullied because they dance. And those statistics are absolutely horrifying. Um, one expert that I, that I interviewed for that story was, you know, if this were not the arts, we would be calling it a child health crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, and (laughs) that story, um, I think I told my editor, oh yeah, I can get this done in 1200 words. Don't worry. I'll, 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 I'll I'll knock it out. Um, and the word count just kept ballooning. It just kept going and going. I think the Final word count of this thing was like 2,700 words because not only was there so much to say, but for people outside of the ballet world, there was so much of a foundation of understanding to establish mm-hmm. to get them to understand um, why ballet is so associated with femininity and why boys who dance are considered to be so precious and special and why they are both, you know, privileged inside. The ballet studio, but bullied outside of it. It was just so much sort of establishing information to, to get through before I could get to the crux of the issue that I started thinking, I think there might be a book here.
0: Yeah. And and there are many different ideas at play and turning point. How would you sort of characterize the the driving themes of the book? Like, what's the elevator pitch?
3: This book is about how to make sure that ballet survives in the 21st century. It's about Mm -hmm. how to make sure that ballet can be a thriving, inclusive, relevant art form in which dancers of all levels are treated with care and respect, um, and in which dancers, regardless of how they participate as young children, as, you know, longstanding professionals, that they leave ballet feeling like it loved them as much as they loved it.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And you're, of course, an experienced journalist, but you also studied sociology. And so you bring this sociologist's perspective to ballet. And I think that's something that doesn't happen enough. Um, What does that particular lens reveal that journalists and historians and other dance writers and dance people might miss?
3: Uh, Ballet is absolutely ripe for sociological analysis. I mean, it's a sociology is the study of people in groups and dance is a, it's its own world. It's its own culture with its own, literally with its own language, with its own rules, with its with a very particular power structure. Um, and uh, it is sort of, it almost cries out for translation, um, not only for people who are outside of it so they can understand this fairly insular world, but also for people who grew up in it, Mm -hmm. this is just how the world works. And then once you are able to step outside of it and have someone explain to you, well, this is a, you know, this is what the power structure looks like. and, And this is why, you know, these rules are set up the way they are. You come to understand yourself and your own experiences in that world differently. Um, once you can step outside of it and sort of, and, and have that explained to you rather than, well, this is just how the world works. This is how it's been since I was four. And I don't know any different.
0: Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of our listeners are. It's just, they have grown up inside this world and have internalized a lot of the dysfunction within it to the point
3: that it just they take it for granted. It's just the way things are. And I, I felt that way as well. And, um, one of the things that was most surprising was even as someone who I wasn't a serious ballet student. You know, I'm very upfront about this in the book. I was not a serious ballet student. I was never pre-professional or professional material. I did ballet, um I was on point for a couple of years and then I just did it as sort of maintenance technique for everything else that I was doing. But even I managed to internalize a lot of that dysfunction and, and to see it as normal. Mm-hmm. And um I thought I was sort of free of that by the time it came to write this book and then I would repeatedly have this experience of interviewing someone for the book, you know, a dancer who was talking about dancing on an injury or um, an artistic director who was talking about dismissing dancers who were too big for his liking. And in the moment I would listen to their explanation and I would sort of nod and empathize. And I would think, yeah, I can rationalize that. That makes sense. And then I would, you know, send that chapter to my editor or I would go out to the kitchen and tell my fiance about it. And they'd be like, that's awful. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, oh, my ballet brain took over. You know, my, my sort of my internalized ballet logic took over for a sec there. And, um, you know, I think this book is going to teach people who don't know a lot about ballet. They're going to learn a lot. But I also hope that um, people who do know a lot about ballet um, and have sort of practised, spent a lot of their lives explaining away some of the things that are wrong with it will be able to see it all in one place and then step back and think, that doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people go through this process sort of organically and on their own Mm -hmm. after they leave ballet and it takes them time and distance to sort of, to look back and think, oh, that probably wasn't great. And what I really hope this book does is sort of accelerates that process for a lot of people and also supports them in that feeling of like, no, you're right. That wasn't great. That was bad. That was dysfunctional. You did not deserve to be treated that way. This was a culture that failed you, this was not you failing to meet ballet's demands. This was ballet failing to treat you the way you deserve to be treated.
0: I, I want to come back to the idea of of ballet as a workplace, um, mm-hmm. because that's another thing that we hit on frequently in this podcast. And Ballet dancers especially are not seen as workers. That's true of all dancers, but it seems to be especially true of ballet dancers. This idea that they are artists and they must suffer for their art and that's expected mm. of them. What's what's at the root of that in ballet culture?
3: I think part of it is gendered. Mm-hmm. You know, Obviously there are lots of men and lots of non-binary people who dance, um, but the default dancer is a woman. And there is a certain expectation uh, that women will suffer, that women Mm -hmm. will uh, do as they're told, that women will be silent and obedient. Um, And I also think it stems from the fact that the only reason anyone of any gender does this job is because they love it with every fiber of their being. Mm -hmm. And that love, Right, that like childhood dream come true is just incredibly easy to exploit. It's incredibly easy to get people to put up with all kinds of unacceptable treatment because they're being permitted to do something that they love because they're getting to live a dream. Um, and I think there's also generally an expectation in American work life writ large that if something matters to you, um, if it, you know, feeds your soul, if it's coming from a place of love and commitment, then you'll do it for low wages or you'll do it despite crappy treatment at work. You know, that's absolutely Mm -hmm. true of people who work in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's true of, of dancers. That's true of dancers as well. Right. Well, if you really loved it, then you do it for Sub minimum wage and pay for your own point shoes, and you know, pay to travel to auditions. I mean, if you really loved it, and I, I'm all for people doing work that they love, and also that love is just very easy for people to exploit.
0: Yeah, and I think in ballet, that's sort of like compounded and exacerbated by the fact that, especially if you're a woman, you're considered utterly replaceable. There are a million other people lining up for your job. If you can't hack it,
3: great they will find somebody else who can. Absolutely. And that sense of um, interchangeability and replaceability is enforced from a very young age Mm -hmm. in the same way that the sense of irreplaceability and incredibly high value um, is enforced for for boys Mm -hmm. from a very young age. Um, And we have documented, we have research showing that the treatment of boys and girls in ballet classes diverges at an incredibly young age and it just persists. Um, and so it's no surprise that by the time you get to being an adult, and you get to the point where you might be a professional, mm-hmm. men and women have a internalized a very different sense of their own value to the ballet economy, um, because quite frankly, they have a they do have a different value in the ballet.
0: Yeah. And then we see that play out down the line in terms of who steps into leadership roles and who thinks about becoming a choreographer, who even sees that as a possibility. And
3: also whose misconduct is tolerated Mm -hmm. and explained away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who feels entitled to mistreat their coworkers and colleagues. It turns out that um, if you raise one group of children to believe that they are special and privileged, uh, they will grow up believing that they're special and privileged. That's just how that works.
0: I fancy that. (laughs) So shifting gears a little bit now, you you started turning point before the pandemic and then mm-hmm. the pandemic happened and it completely changed everything, kind of including the the stakes of the of the book you were writing. Can you talk a little about how the arrival of COVID changed the the nature of the finished product?
3: I had finished all of the primary reporting for this book in November 2019. I think I got it done just before the sort of Christmas rush and nutcracker rush made it basically impossible to talk to anyone involved in the ballet world. (laughs) Um, And then I did my last piece of sort of on the ground in the room reporting in January, 2020. When the pandemic hit, obviously dancers were some of the first workers to be pulled off the job. Um, And they will be, some of the last to go back in their like full pre-COVID capacity. Obviously some of them are luckily already back to work in bubbles and digital dance and zoom classes and whatever. Um, and my, you know, my first instinct, like a lot of people was, well, who knows how long this will last. This might just be four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever I had writing to do. I put my head down. I got the writing done. Um, and then, you know, by the time we got to late spring and then early summer, um, it wasn't only, uh, the sort of the pandemic shutterings and like the increasingly clear prediction that Nutcracker was not going to happen, at least not in its mm-hmm. normal form. It was also the uprisings in response to the feeling of George Floyd that, you know, for the first time, we saw ballet institutions, everything from companies to local neighbourhood schools, talking explicitly about um, about racism, about white supremacy in ballet, um, not just sort of in the world at large, but like in their own homes, in their own dance homes, um, in a way that they really had not done with previous... Um, with previous expressions of, of Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and so it became very clear to me over that summer that there was going to be, going to need to be more reporting, um, that I could not just give readers, you know, and here's what happened at the end of 2019 and then nothing changed. <laughs> it was like, okay, well, you know, think things have changed, you know, in a, in a really big way in several really big ways. And so, you know, as you say the stakes the stakes do look and feel different, but I tried to be really clear in the book that it was not just that there were new problems that ballet had to contend with, it was that ballet had left itself vulnerable, more vulnerable to the kinds of challenges it was now it was now facing because. Um, of the racism, and the sexism, and the elitism that it had allowed to persist until 2020, which made facing 2020, and the years that will follow, uh, so much harder. And, And that's true of lots of institutions in American life. You know, the pandemic revealed existing weaknesses that had always, that had been there for a long time, that had been ignored, or explained away, or, you know, not prioritized. Um, and then, and the responding to the pandemic was made more difficult by those problems. And I tried to be really clear in the book, you know, any energy that is spent rebuilding ballet to what it was before last summer's protests, before the pandemic, any energy that is spent restoring the status quo from 2019 will ultimately be energy wasted. Mm-hmm. This is a rebuild from the ground up moment. Um, otherwise ballet will just leave itself vulnerable again to the next wave that comes along and knocks everything over.
0: Mm-hmm. It's kind of a weird time to be a, a ballet person because a lot of people are really angry at ballet right now. Yeah. and clearly for good reason. And at the same time, yes, it's clearly still this like beautiful, rewarding, hopefully viable art. And that's where a lot of the anger comes from, out of care for something that has profound value. So, I mean, at this point, having written this book that interrogates all of these huge problems in ballet, what makes you hopeful about ballet's future as we start that rebuilding process?
3: Um, I find real potential in that anger, you know, like you say, I think that anger comes from a place of frustrated love, mm-hmm. you know, like I see the value in you ballet. Why don't you see the value in me? Because I'm, you know, because I'm not white, because I'm not skinny, because I am a, like a man who dances in it, like too effeminate a way. like for what the, num- the number of things, f- the number of reasons for which you can be devalued and dismissed and um, and tossed away by this art form is just endless. I mean, you have to sort of win the genetic and socioeconomic lottery uh, mm-hmm. and then just keep getting lucky and working harder than anyone else in the world over and over again. Um, and so I think a lot of the frustration comes from that sort of frustrated love. You know, I see the value in ballet. Why doesn't Valley see the value in me? Um, but I think... That love can be expressed in all kinds of ways, right? I think it's totally valid if um, people want to stay and rebuild it from within. I think it's totally valid if people want to take what you know, what is serving them about valid, and what's good and then go build something different. And I also think it's totally valid if people just want to say, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? I have a good bleeper. Okay. Go for it. I think it's totally valid if people want to say, you know what? this, like I have given you all of me, you've given me basically nothing in return and seem unwilling to change at a, at a speed that is going to make meaningful change in my life. I mean, future generations may benefit from it, but I won't Mm -hmm. this. I'm out. And there are lots of people who have already done that. There are lots of people who have already walked away or who have been pushed out and are walking around with, you know, for lack of a better word, ballet trauma. Mm -hmm. People who believe that the problem with ballet was them, that they failed, not that a system and a culture failed them. Um, Mm -hmm. So the the question was, what gives me hope? Um, And I mean, what makes me hopeful is that people are finding whichever of those paths is right for them. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: And so my, you know, yes, I want ballet to be saved. I want it to continue to exist, but not at the cost of the people who do it and love it. You know, people are more important to me than an abstract art form. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I I think it's also important, and you've talked about this before too, not to sort of, I mean, I'm I'm just looking at the, the subtitle of your book of how a new generation of dancers is saving ballet from itself, which is true. They are. And yet, we can't sort of place all our bets on this next generation and say, oh, they're fantastic, they get it. They're going to save us all Mm -hmm. because that's abdicating our own responsibility to fix these problems that are hurting people right now. And of course, writing a whole book about those problems is a pretty big proactive step to take. But what else in terms of those of us who do have some clout or a little bit of power in this world, journalists, administrators, leaders, veteran dancers even, What can we do now to start affecting positive change?
3: Yeah. And and to be clear, you know, I use the word generation fairly loosely Mm -hmm. and um, I'm I'm very wary of the, you know, Gen Z will save us all framing Mm -hmm. um, because they shouldn't have to. Um, And frankly, it takes all of us to save us. You know, no one generation is going to be able to do it on our own, on their own. It takes all of us to save us, um, and that's true of climate. That's true of gun violence, right? That's true of all of the things onto which we like shove, we <laughs> shove onto young, onto young people, and be like, "You got this." It takes all of us, um, and because it takes all of us, I think you know whether you're a journalist or an administrator or a teacher, I think figuring out how you have been complicit Mm -hmm. in these problems and being really honest with yourself about how you have, you know, how you have upheld a system in which, you know, boys get better treatment than girls or how you have, you know, conveyed to your dance students that the right body for ballet is a white body for ballet. Um, How you have, you know, priced your curriculum so that it's basically impossible for low income or even in some cases, middle-class families to afford to study ballet, um, or, you know, take a look at the, um, races, ethnicities, and genders of, uh, the choreographers that you've commissioned in the last five years and look at whatever patterns might emerge there. Mm -hmm. Um, and to, to sort of look that in the face and say, well, I know better now and I'm going to do better now Um, and recognize that none of this is going to be fixed overnight. None Mm -hmm. of it's going to be fixed all at once. Um, But recognizing that, you know, the stakes of this are not just we won't get the best dancers or we won't win the most awards at YAGP or we won't be able to attract the most audience members. The stakes of this are this art form to which you have devoted your entire life is going to wither and die if we don't fix all of these problems. Again, not overnight, not all at once. But the stakes here are not just about you as an individual or your school or your company. This is an art form that has been around for hundreds of years. It like commands the like love and imagination of hundreds of thousands of people. And it's going to wither and die unless each and every one of us figures out how to make it what it needs to be to survive.
0: Chloe, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, for sharing your insights, your like deep, deep knowledge of this subject matter. Um, where can listeners go, first of all, to buy your book, because they should, but also to find out more about your work and about what's up next for you? Yeah
3: uh, listeners can order the book at their local independent bookstore. Um, and if they don't know what that is, they can go to bookshop.org and get connected with their local indie. And, uh, they can find me at chloesangel.com, um, or chloeangel on Twitter. And, uh, on my website, they'll, they'll find a full list of events where they can come hear me talk at bookshops, um, usually in conversations with authors and journalists who are like way cooler than me. Um, so there are some really great events coming up that they shouldn't miss. Um, and the other thing is that uh, I am uh, available to come and talk to your dance school. Um, we're doing a, a, a digital. I mean, this is one thing that you know Zoom has made possible. I can Zoom into your dance school, come talk to your dance parents and your advanced ballet students. Um, and we've got a very easy to fill out form on the uh, on our on my website. I want to meet all of the ballot parents in the whole country. <laughs> Great. Okay, and
0: we'll include links to all the links to all the things in our show notes, just to make sure people have access to them that way too. And a vote, an, an extra vote for following Chloe on Twitter because. You'll get this sort of delightful mix of like woke ballet news and also ballet dad jokes, which I don't know about the rest of you, but that's exactly the the Twitter cocktail that I need right now. So wait,
3: what's your favorite ballet dad joke?
0: Oh, you had a series about just because you got your vaccine doesn't mean that you can <laughs> gather all your undead girl pals and make men dance till they're dead. That's come on, come people. On people. Yeah, finished. let's be reasonable here. Yes, that whole that whole thread was exactly my uh, my sweet spot. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Chloe. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Chloe. And I wanted to give another shout out to the virtual events that she is available to do for ballet studios, because those are totally free. And they could be incredibly useful, of course, for dancers and teachers, but also, as Chloe said, for dance parents who are such an important part of this ecosystem and crisis and will be such an important part of the the fixing of it. Um, So we've included the link to that sign up page in our show notes. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating and keep dancing.
1: Mind here you go, friends. Bye, everyone.
0: The Dance Edit podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Whether you're a dancer, a fitness enthusiast, or a business owner, you are always on the move, either physically or in making progress towards your goals. The 5678 podcast can help you get to where you want to go. Hosted by trailblazing entrepreneur, Alexandra Fimova, the podcast features interviews with extraordinary individuals who are making strides within their lives and careers. Whatever your connection to the dance world, the 5678 podcast can provide inspiration and empowerment. Listen to 5678 on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at 567 eightcom